0: This next section is going to be just a string of stories about Rachel. <laughs> Not really. But I'm sure I can work one in occasionally. <clears throat> she knows most of them that are going to come. So, uh, All right, I want to talk in this um, about a, a number of things, but again, we're still an in introductory level. Uh, laying the big picture, groundwork, and I want to talk about the culture and government of the household. Again, we're looking, the way I like to do these subjects is what I call the aerial view first. Let's get the big picture. We need to have the, you know, kind of the idea of where we're going, and then as we get closer and closer, we'll narrow in on the, on the particulars. Um, children are temporary subjects intended to leave. The goal is colonization. A family is a culture. It involves language, customs, assumptions, and all of these shape children. It is the parental duty to conform the family culture to God's word by instruction, training, and example. And so the vermilion household, it ought to mean something to be a vermilion, Uh, Your children, everybody can plug yourself in here, but let's take the Vermilion household. Your children are Vermilions first, and then they have their first names attached. So in other words, if you're born in my house, everybody was a booth. And it means something to be in the booth household first. Primarily, in this household, you're a booth first, and then you're Aaron, Kristen, and Rachel, and Marinel and Randy next okay, your individuality is always in the context of the bigger picture. And of course, as a member of a church, okay, you're part of a bigger family, and so your family uh, finds its identity in Christ first. That's the primary family. Your household is an outpost of that, and then your individual members of your household go from there. Does that make sense? So that's why we start with the redemptive community, with Christ and the church, and say that's the primary family, that's the big family. And then from there we have our individual families. We go to our houses and we're outposts. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Your family is an outpost of the church. And the individuals in your family are outposts of your family, wherever they go, to school or work or play or whatever. But they're always connected in that way. So that's why we get the word of God, we're instructed in church from God's word to go home and live as Christians. And, uh, and so, again, we're developing a culture. The sins, uh, the sins um, of the fathers are visited upon the third and fourth generations, according to the scriptures. There are many forces outside the family that seek to shape the, your culture. Any void will be filled. You might leave them alone, but the world will not. The devil is never on time. He's always either early or late. Um, If you have small children, the world demands that they grow up. It will demand their sexualization and their independence from you. Ironically, as teens, the world will demand that they embrace immaturity and foolishness. It's the nature of the child to be shaped and molded. Our theology matters. Ideas have consequences. That is an inescapable concept. Whether you have ever heard that, if, you, if you've never thought about the fact that what you believe and the ideas you have always have consequences, if somebody's never thought about that, it doesn't matter, they still do. It happens. And God gave you children and they are little empty. They're not empty in terms of their nature, but they are empty in terms of their knowledge. And they're going to love what you teach them to love. And they're going to know what you teach them to know. That's your job, and you have all the control. You have ab- you don't have authority over the world. You may not have authority over anybody else, but you have authority over your children. And, and especially when they're very young, to control everything. Now you have to do that in wisdom, you're going to follow God's word and all that, but you understand you make those judgment calls, you make that, those decisions, and your theology matters. And uh, do not be conformed to this world, Paul says, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So you're going to have, uh, you're going to decide which books they read, what curriculum they have, uh, Uh, who they associate with. You're going to have all these controls in their lives. uh, And so, again, the nature of the child is to be shaped and molded. The church, as I said, is an outpost of the kingdom of God, your home an outpost of the church. Therefore, establishing a Christian culture in your home is essential to a broader Christian culture. Television and the Internet are alien cultures, far removed, from the biblical culture. Now, I'm not at this point going to get into a detailed discussion of those things. I think there's a place for them, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in detail later. But you do understand that that is a portal into your home that has the power to erode what you're trying to do. For example, if you park your kids in front of the TV to turn on some cable channel on a Saturday morning because you want to sleep late, and that's an easy thing to do because they'll sit there and watch that for two hours and you don't know what's being taught there. You know, it's Dora the Explorer. It's got to be safe. It's a cartoon, right? And Dora's cute. Now, I'm not actually specifically speaking so much about Dora. I actually personally don't know. But, but that's the point if you don't know. If you do know and you think it's a good thing for your family and for your children and that it's actually... Reinforcing what you want to teach your kids, then go for it. But it's very easy to just not know and to assume that such things aren't really having much impact. And uh, I'm tempted here, I think I'll just go ahead and do it since I'm. Let me just take a little short diatribe here off on the current. How many of you saw the Miley Cyrus debacle here in the last few weeks? You know about it. Okay? Y'all know who Miley Cyrus is. I had to kind of, I, I, I knew, but, okay, you know, she was Hannah Montana, which is a Disney creation. Little girl, cute little girl, sings, dances, acts, very cute, very sexy for a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, but not overly, in other words, it was geared toward little girls. And they had all the Hannah Mant- Montana paraphernalia and dolls and music and She was a billion-dollar, annual billion-dollar property of Disney. Her father is uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, the uh, former. Huh? Yeah, well, but apparently he made some money, but not as much as his daughter. Okay, so Miley Cyrus, and and by the way, this is in the tradition of Britney Spears and others who've come up through the, hey, it's Walt Disney. It's got to be okay, right? It's Disney. It's a family thing. Okay. Why does Disney do what they do? They want your money. Okay. And so they're going to do what it takes to get your money. And if they can't get your money, they'll get your kids, uh, get your money through your kids. Okay. Uh, it doesn't matter how they get it, they'll get it. And some of you saw, I wrote recently, if you take your kid down the aisle at, a cer- at the grocery store and you're down the cereal aisle and your four-year-old or your three-year-old's there, what are they going to go for? You know, The tricks, Right? Or something like that. The tricks are for kids. A colorful box, there's a toy inside, and they're coated in sugar. So uh, naturally they go for that. Now, do the kids know that Kellogg's is selling them something? Does Kellogg's know they're selling your kids something? Everybody is selling you something all the time. Everybody. I'm selling you something right now and you're going to have to decide whether to buy it or not. But if you know that everybody is always trying to sell you something, then you're more likely to be careful, right? But if the kid going down the aisle has no idea, it doesn't occur to him that that advertisement that was on that cartoon on Saturday morning that he's seen for the umpteenth time, and all of a sudden he wants what everybody else wants, or the little girl wants to look like Hannah Montana, and she wants that short little skirt, And Mama, who wants her girl to be cute and everybody to think she's cute, uh, is happy to sexualize her 10-year-old so she can look like Hannah Montana. And because that's what everybody's doing, and it's a mindless kind of deal, it still has consequences. And if you hadn't thought about it, if you're like the kid running down the cereal aisle and you're sucking it in too because you don't think about it, you're being sold something and you don't know it. That's what the devil does, and he does it through agents, through all kind of sources. Now, I'm not trying to say Kellogg's is evil. No, that's a separate subject for another time. Maybe you think they are, maybe you don't. That's not my point, okay? They're trying to make money and pay salaries and have a job and do the things they do, and like anything else, it can be sinful, but that's, I'm getting off track here. What happens, though, with Disney, I do think Disney is more duplicitous, they do know what they're doing. And so Molly grows up as Hannah Montana, but then at some point she's no longer a little girl. She can't be on the Mickey Mouse Club, and she can't have the, Molly, the, the Hannah Montana show because now she's old. She's like 19. What do we do with her? She has all these followers. We've got to reinvent her. And they've done several things, but the last thing they did is they they dressed her in a latex um, bikini that was skin-colored at the MTV Awards, which was billed as a family show. And on the show, along with um, Robin Thicke, who's written a highly sexual song, she performed basically a pornographic dance with him on the stage for the world to see. And I don't mean a little bit. I mean... She she simulated masturbation. She simulated sex with him uh, on the stage for the world to see, for kids to see. This is is Hannah Montana. And so now all those little girls who followed her all this time, who are now 15, 16, 18, uh, will just keep following her along. This is what's normal. And anybody who dared to complain about it and I, I want to say this. I don't normally recommend this. I didn't, let me, let me say this. I watched it on the, you go to YouTube or something and just pull up Molly Cyrus and Robin Thicke. I would recommend you watch it. I didn't find it stimulating. I found it gross. But you need to know what's happening out there because when your kid is three and you're at the grocery store, what do you do? Do you keep an eye on your kids all the time? Do you panic if one of them kind of got over to the next aisle a bit ahead of you and you didn't know where they were? You're worried somebody's going to snatch your kids, right? You know what? They're going to snatch them when they're 13, too, and 15. And when they go off to college, they'll snatch them. The devil takes them anytime. But we tend to be on guard when they're little and we forget to be on guard later. And we forget to be on guard about ideas. And so we think, oh, we're never going to let them watch an R-rated movie or a movie that has sex or violence or cuss words in it. We're going to be very diligent over there, but then we're going to plop them down in front of a Disney show that has all kind of uh, ideas that are contrary to the Christian faith but presented with a nice smiling cartoon. Now, I'm not saying that's true of all Disney things. I'm picking on Disney now, but they deserve to be picked on because some of what they do is bad, and it's false. And if we're mindless about it, that's where we, we don't... So many times I see a parent with a kid in trouble, an older kid, and they really have no clue what went wrong. And yet, if you back up and you look and you can see inside the home and what was going on, it was mostly negligence. It was mostly I never thought about that. It never occurred to me that that was a problem. So... Um, Reduction, Uh, let me just say, television, internet, those are alien cultures removed from biblical culture, but it's much more than the sex and violence. We need to be teaching about those things uh, positively, and and the church has been very negligent in that area. And and by teaching about it, I don't mean let's see how prude we can be. Here's, Here's something you'll hear me say often. If you want to write something down, this is one to write down. Ignorance and innocence are not the same thing. Christian parents have often assumed if I can keep my children ignorant of the world, then that's the same thing as being innocent. Now, there are plenty of age-appropriate things. I'm not suggesting we expose our four-year-olds to all kinds of things in the world. But part of your plan needs to be, remember we're raising adults, not children, is I need a kid that when they are headed off to college, have him, have engaged the world in such a way that they understand it. You ever seen a magic trick that was really w- well done and you went, wow, I've got a friend that's a really good magician. And he'll show me one of these things and I'm just like, there's no way. How, how did you do that? And I've learned not to ever ask that because he'll tell me. And then when he tells me, it's like, I can't enjoy that trick anymore because I know how it's done. And it's, once I see it, then there's no magic left. I mean, I'm using the word magic loosely, of course. But it's like, oh, well, that's no good. Okay, That's what we have to do with our kids in the culture. We have to show them the magic trick. We have to take the ooh and the ah out of it. We have to tell them about the Miley Cyrus and tell them what happens to her, that she's a piece of merchandise, that she's being used and abused both by Disney and her parents and the world, and this is a little girl whose daddy doesn't love her or he wouldn't let her be up there doing that. And I love you, and I'm not going to let you do that. And let me tell you what's going to happen to her. It's already happened to many, many others. Okay? They're going to use her up, and they're going to suck as much money out of her, and then they're going to throw her away when they're done, and they'll have ten more to replace her. And what you need to do is go show your kids as they get older, let's see what some of these girls who were really the hot thing in the 80s and the 90s, where are they now? What happened to them? Men and women. Hollywood's a great petri dish for this. Okay? We have to demystify the lies of the devil. We have to show them how the trick is being done so that they go, oh, that's not attractive, that's ugly. Reaction to an unbelieving culture is not the same thing as building a biblical culture. It will take far more than pulling our kids out of public schools. Parental involvement must be active and constant, and parental abdication is possible anywhere, even in homeschooling. I'm a fan of homeschooling. I'm a fan of Christian schools. But I want to tell you, as a pastor of nearly 30 years, some of the biggest tragedies I've dealt with in the last five years have come with young adults who are in homeschools. I'm not picking on homeschools. I'm just saying because there's an assumption there, I think, in a homeschool that we're controlling everything. We, we studied and picked the curriculum, and we are in the homeschool group, and we, we do this and we do that. And what's happened is, remember I said kids learn how to fly under the radar? And if you're not paying attention, Johnny's upstairs and Mama says, Have you finished your history? Yeah, Mom, I finished. Okay. Mom's down taking care of the other three kids. And Johnny's up there cruising the Internet for porn. And Mom's shocked three years out when she finds out that her son is quite... Sophisticated when it comes to such things, because she was oblivious. I'm not trying to be mean to her, but what happened? You see how that can happen? You can think, okay, I've got everything. I've got, I've got these five things under really good control. But if you're, if you're not careful, and and aware, uh, then it can happen right under your nose. And I'd say this: if it can happen in your home and it does, then it's happening anywhere. And I can assure you. And again, I. I deal with messes all the time. Three weeks ago, in one week, I had three phone calls from parents. One was local, and two were out of town. I have some associations with other churches, but they were the same kind of thing with teenagers. And it's boys and girls, not just boys. And I'm not just talking about sexual things. I'm talking about all kinds of things. Ideas have consequences. Fathers must lead in the establishment of this biblical culture, and mothers must buy in, since she's going to handle much of the practical application. A culture has its own language, laws, customs, traditions, and assumptions. I'll give you an example. I talk about being a booth. Okay? Booths are Christians. Booths go to church. Booths tithe. Booths don't talk like that. We don't use that language. We use this language. We pray over our meals. We forgive one another. We deal with conflicts. We open our house up for hospitality. We, this is who we are. This isn't just what we do, it's who we are. That's how central it has to be. We have to have a culture. We live in a time that is increasingly aimless and clueless about child rearing. Our culture is even confused over masculinity and femininity and how God designed each of those to complement each other in the home and in raising children. But our culture is confused because our households are confused. God's purpose for the family is to provide a culture that will mold and shape our children to the standards of His Word. And if we don't know what those standards are, then we cannot possibly begin to achieve that goal. And so many families drift from day to day with good intentions, but unsure of where they're going and what they're doing. There's no plan. Now, since a family is an inescapable culture, there's another one of those inescapable concepts. You have a culture. It's only a question of what kind. Is it a godly culture? Is it one that has a plan and a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish? Or is it one that you just kind of cobble together here and there? Pretty good, better than most, but not precise. And so many families drift from day to day, unsure and confused. You are molding and shaping your children, but to what standard? Even when families are unaware of their culture, of their households, unaware of any standard, that becomes the culture, and no standard becomes the standard. That's what I mean by being inescapable. If parents will not take the lead, then the world is full of those who will. A child left alone will not remain alone for long. A child is malleable, and he will either be shaped by his parents or he'll be shaped by something or someone else. And as I said, the devil wants you, and if he can't get you, he'll take your children. Some of you have heard me tell this, give this illustration, but I'll give it again just because it's a good one. There's There's a movie called True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Arnold. Schwarzenegger's divorced he has two teenage kids and there's just a scene i always remember in that movie where the two of them tom arnold and arnold Schwarzenegger are walking through arnold Schwarzenegger's living room and his two teenagers who are punks a boy and a girl are sitting there and he tell arnold Schwarzenegger tells them to do something i don't remember what it was and they they go to the back of the house and they come back the kids hadn't done it and he says i told you to do this i'm your father And Tom Arnold, who's a friend of Schwarzenegger, says, you're not their father. Madonna and Axel Rose are their parents. he was right. I thought that was just a great line in that story because what had happened is he thought, I'm the father and I'll just do it. And, of course, they didn't care what he said or what he thought. They had new parents. And there's lots of people out there that want to be parents uh, for your children and lead them in a new direction. And so, again, the Bible says we're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means we've got to look at how the world's doing it and, and, and challenge and find out, are they doing anything right? Well, yeah, the, a lot of families bring food home to their kids, and you know, or take them for an ice cream cone and go play some games and there's lots of things unbelievers do that are okay in and of themselves, but if they're taken out of context and they're, they're not rooted in the fear of the Lord and, and a sense of understanding the whys and the, how, and the hows and where we're going with this, then even those things, you know, you think about pirates on a ship. They eat. They help each other. They swab the deck. They uh, probably play cards and laugh and tell jokes and help each other do this and that. And then they go rob people together. And after they rob somebody, they're breaking the law, they're stealing, and they take the booty and, they, and the loot, and they bring it on board, and they split it up among themselves. They're really nice to each other. Maybe they're funny, but they're always pirates. And even when they're doing those allegedly good things, they're doing it as pirates. Pirates. An unbeliever who is not living to the glory of God, even when they're doing good things, ultimately, the Bible says, even the plowing of the wicked is wicked. Um, And so, uh, unless true Christian culture is reestablished in Christian homes, we're never going to see a Christian culture anywhere else. Thus, many unchristian assumptions about the home have to be replaced. Many parents are fearful or reluctant to assume the full responsibility of providing for a culture and nurture of their children. Oh, we take them to church, we might even give them a Christian education, Um, we don't let them watch R-rated movies, and, you know, there's a few other things on that list, and we think, hey, we're doing a lot better than most people, so that's probably enough. That's a mistake. God lays the responsibility at our feet when he gives us children, and there's nothing more valuable. We're called to build and maintain a godly culture in our homes through teaching. Are you teaching your children specifically what to think, how to look at the world? Are you demystifying the culture for them? Uh, Are you you disciplining them? And by discipline, I don't just mean spankings or go to your room or those kind of things. Most of discipline is positive. It's what I do every Sunday when I preach is discipline. It's formative discipline. Here, let me show you how to do that. Let me tell you what you need to know. Come here, let me help you with that. That's discipline. And then if they don't do it or they don't do it, well, we correct them. Honey, no, let's, let's do that again. That wasn't the way I showed you to do it. Let's do it again. I need you to go back and do a better job. And then if they're rebellious, now we bring correction and, and, and uh, perhaps some corporal uh, attention getting. You know, the Bible says that you can change somebody's heart through their behind. Foolishness is bound up where? In the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. So you can change their hearts by getting their attention through their behinds in a loving and firm way so that now they'll listen and actually do what you tell them to do because it's good for them, because you love them. Our homes are not the only place where children receive physical food and shelter, but but also, it's not only where they receive physical food and shelter, but also where they're nurtured and shaped for the Lord. Our home should be the best place on earth, the center of the child's universe. Fathers and then mothers must understand the biblical vision and then move to establish, build, and maintain this essential culture. Now, perhaps we don't think about this as much uh, as parents, but when God gives us children and places us over them to raise them, we are assuming a duty then that carries with it the greatest importance. To fail in this work has eternal consequences. The greatest of care must be given to this labor, both the planning and the execution. Jesus warns us not to cause a child to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's what Jesus says. So how serious should parents be in the assumption of these responsibilities? Some parents neglect their children by ignoring them, others by indulging them, as we said. Both kinds of neglect indicate selfish parents, and both kinds neglect and harm children. And so we have to be servants of our children and not cater to them. It's helpful to remember then, as I said, that we're raising adults. All right, I'm going to stop here. We may do a little bit more, but I want to stop and see what comments or questions you might have at this point. Thoughts that may have been provoked. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just little practical things there would be to ask, you know, tell me something that you're thankful for today. Uh, you know, just learn, teaching kids gratitude and thankfulness. Um, one of the things I've seen, and some parents are doing a very good job, and some of you are teachers benefit from this, but I know I have a number of students who, when I teach, regularly thank me. You know, thank you for teaching today. That's a great habit to teach your kids. And then uh, a good habit is to also ask them, "What are you thankful for today?" And if they know you're going to ask them, then they're going to think about it a little more. The first few times, they may have a hard time, or you'll run into the problem where you know, "Well, I'm thankful for recess," or "I'm thankful for," you know, they'll say the same thing every day. Well, you got to provoke them a little more to, to think a little harder and deeper about that. Uh, or you know, tell me, tell me something you learned today, or you know, just you want to engage gauge them in a, in a way that you're excited about the fact that they did something um, obviously there's joy in a job well done if they did good on the test or or whatever uh, then you praise them for that that's joy um, so I don't know just find ways to uh, engage them in those positive ways and there'll be other times when you got engage them in the other way <laughs> you ate what on the test you know, did you study? And so you're going to be, there's going to be correction and other ways that you have to engage them, too. Yes. We'll have a whole se- evening probably just on the subject of ways to discipline, age-appropriate. Um, even every child is going to be different in that regard. You, you know already... <laughs> You know, when you have every child's different, and so what works with one doesn't work with the other. Uh, We're going to look at the basic principles of discipline that the Bible gives us and recognize that God sometimes tells us in the Bible to stand in a specific spot, but most of the time he tells us to stand in a particular room. And so we're in a room that has four walls, and he said, no, you can't do that. You can't go outside this room and do those things. But there are a number of things you can do Uh, in the room, and so one of the basic principles I have is the least amount of force that gets the job done is what you want to use. You don't want to kill a fly with a sledgehammer, Um, and and sometimes I see parents who have, you know, one method or two methods they use in discipline, no matter what the offense, and... um, Remember, the goal is always to win our children's hearts, and we're going to make them cry sometimes, and we should. And if, in fact, if we don't ever do that, we're not going to win their hearts because they're not going to take us seriously. And, and, uh, and Your children should fear you the way you want them to fear the Lord, which is a matter of respect, not terror. Uh, but there is a... Huh? If you have a child that's that way... Uh, you get counsel from other people to find out. For no, Number one, don't assume that that's true. Um, uh, there, it may be that you need some some wisdom from people who've had been in that situation or can give you some counsel as to how to, to deal with that. But um, don't just make assumptions like, oh, well, this is a kid. No matter what I do, he's going to do it anyway. He's headstrong. Um, you're bigger, stronger, smarter. You may have to figure out a better way. Um, And let me say this. I know um, that in this world, in this fallen world, there are any number of exceptions. What we're going to do is say, here are the ideals. Nobody has an ideal home. We're sinners. We fall short. But I have to know what the ideal is to know where I'm falling short. Does that make sense? So sometimes when we start talking about an ideal father, husband, mother, wife, Kids, we say, oh, well, I'm not even close to that. Well, that's good. You should know that you're going to fall short. It's interesting when the Bible talks about being blameless. For example, it isn't doesn't mean you're sinless. Job was blameless. Abraham blameless. Blameless isn't sinless. Blameless is that when you sin, you do what God says to do about that too, like repent and ask forgiveness. And one of the reasons you get kids for 20 years is you're going to make mistakes, and you have 20 years to fix it. Well don't have 20 years to fix it. You make a mistake on Monday, you fix it on Monday, and you do better on Tuesday. But you got 20 years to get it right. And so, um, if you run into one of those real hard situations where it's like, I don't know what else to do. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I'm still having this problem. Then the community is going to be an important place to go and say, you know, What are we? Are we doing something wrong, or uh, do I need? You know, what? Where do I go from here? So that's how I would approach that. What else? Maybe uh, throw out some areas that you want us to cover. Uh, I mean, again, some of these we will cover, like discipline. Um, But any any other big areas that you say, that's something I'm really wanting to get some instruction on or direction on in particular. Well, yeah, let uh, me just give you a few little tips right now to get, get going. Some of these, you, uh, as you, you've, many of you heard me say before, a lot of what a pastor does, a lot of what we do with each other is we tell each other what we already know, but we need to hear it again and get reminded. Um, uh, most everybody most everybody struggles with this because lives are busy and chaotic and schedules are hard to have that are regular. And, and one of the other factors that's big is our kids are changing you know, what a two-year-old can do versus a five-year-old is pretty significant. And then when you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and a one-year-old, now you've got, you know, you now, now you know what it's like. Well, you know already because you've pastored, but, you know, when I look at a congregation, I've got kind of the same thing. I've got people all over the map. So when you get ready to teach, how do, how do you do that uh, in a way that you don't leave these behind and don't leave these bored? Um, doing something, number one, doing something's better than doing nothing. Something's always better than nothing when it comes to leading your family in, in these things. I'd rather you pray one sentence and read one verse than to do nothing. Once a week is better than not at all. Once a day is better than once a week. Don't beat yourself up if you say, well, we set out last you know, the first of the month, we're going to do it every day, and by the third week or the second week or the second day, we missed two days. Oh, well, it doesn't work. Well, just do it the next day, okay? Don't become Pharisees about it, but doing something, even with little kids. Uh, Part of what you're teaching kids, number one, is that you do it. That may be the most important first lesson you're teaching. This is what we do. Number two, you're, showing, you're modeling for them how to do it. You're teaching them how to pray. And, and for example, you know, you're teaching them how to sit still. And you say, well, we come to church and we're in here for an hour and 15 minutes and it's really hard for little kids to sit still. It is, and I understand that. And there's always a learning curve there. But uh, if, you, if you have 10 minutes a day at your house, typically, or even three or four times a week, uh, and they have to sit still. I, I see, I think sometimes this is a problem. We're at home and we're doing our Bible study or our family worship. And because we're at home and it's casual, they're crawling over the back of the couch and under the chair. And, and as long as they're not making too much racket, we kind of plow through. I would urge you, to, if you have to, to shorten the time, but make them sit still. When we have worship, you have to be quiet. You have to sit there and not mess with your sister and not mess with a toy. You have to sit there. I'm not talking about infants here, but I'm I'm saying what's their, you know, toddlers. Having them do it well for three minutes is better than having them do it poorly for ten. You you set the pattern of the standard of what you expect. And what I would do in family worship is say, what do we expect? What is our goal for them at church, in public worship? Then I want to inculcate those things in them at, at home. So if I don't want them rustling papers at church or turning around in their seat at church, then I'm not going to allow that when we do it at home. I need you to sit there. You tell them where to sit. Sit by your mom. Sit. I want you to sit in this. I want to sit in the other chair. No, I told you to sit in this chair. And and you order things in a way. And again, it's short smalls better than not at all. <laughs> hey, that rhymes. You put it on a bumper sticker. Um, it was an accident. Anyway, that that's just where I'd start, but then obviously the specific materials vary with the family and the age of the kids, and we can talk about some resources there when the time comes. What else? I know you said that you um you may who you want them to become, but what about just personality differences and letting them still be that person? Okay. Here's here's what I would say uh, on the face of it is your job is, like any good manager, to evaluate your children. What are their gifts? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? We'd say personality, obviously, is kind of a broad category. But if you think of it in terms of what are they they good at, what are they not so good at? And that emerges over time. You can't figure that out immediately. That will shift a little as you go. And always remember that things they're really good at, they're probably too good at. Or they're going, to be, they're going to tend to be too good at. Your strength can be your weakness. Okay? If they're talkative, they can talk too much. Now you don't want to kill that. You want to turn it down about 10%. If they're the one that always has to answer the question, every time you're having you Say, no, what I want you to do and I've done this sometimes in a Bible study group where I have people like that who want to answer every question because they can, is I'll go to them privately and say, you know what I'd like you to do? I'm happy for you to answer questions, and I know you know this really well. But what I'd like you to do is give other people a chance to answer first because I'm trying to encourage them to answer. So you can do that with older children. You can say, you know what? Uh, or I don't, I'm going to call on people uh, when we do Bible study. And so I don't want you burping out the answer. We want to give your siblings a chance. But if they're quiet, then you're going to have to do something. So so, if so, so they're really good at something, you're going to have to dial them back a little bit. That's discipline and governing that gift. And if, they're on, if they have something they're weak on, I always say, if they're really good at something, dial it back 10%. If they're really weak on something, you need to up it 50%. You're going to have to Really push them. You get what you discipline for. Okay, so if they're not speaking up, obviously at first you're very patient. They're timid. They don't speak up. Then you urge them, you teach them, you encourage them, but then you gradually, I like to think of discipline is like the dimmer switch. Okay, Again, the least amount of pressure that gets what I want. But eventually as they get a little older and I say speak up or look me in the eye and they don't, then they're going to get some corrective discipline for that. Um, one of the things that impressed me the most when I first came to Nacogdoches, and I, I think I'd have to give the, the alders a lot of credit here because they were kind of de facto the, the leaders, was the, the respect that the children showed to everybody, especially to adults. There weren't a lot of children, but the ones that were there were were disciplined to respond to adults to look people in the eye if they were little boys they shook hands but they always had to respond and I see that I go, I go places all the time where that's not the case you speak to a kid and they just act like you don't exist there's one thing your children or two things your children have to do in life honor and respect well let me put those two together let's say honor and obey and that's pretty much true for everybody in their life. They have to do at least one of those. They have to honor everybody, even their siblings. Teaching your children to love their brother and sister, to not whack them in the head or yell at them or be mean to them, that gets a spanking. Okay? That is not acceptable behavior, and that has consequences. Your goal is to raise kids that actually love each other when they're grown ups and don't despise each other. And and so you don't allow ungodly behavior between a brother and a sister, a brother and a brother, and a sister and a sister. You discipline for that. And so back to your point, though, is you find those areas they're not so good at, and you figure out ways to give them things to do that kind of they're not naturally inclined to do. Now, I'm not saying if they just can't sing, you're going to force them to be singers. But you do want to force them to be better singers than they are. That doesn't mean they don't sing what I'm saying. Maybe they're never going to be a good singer, but they can be better than they are. Does that make sense? So yeah, every kid's different. And don't buy into that stuff with par- parents where your other kids are very good at saying, yeah, but you let him, yeah, I sure did. And I'm not going to let you. You're not him. Okay, And I let you do things I don't let him do. Okay, I'm the boss. You're not. And I don't mean to be ugly, but you're going to hear me say something maybe many times. One of the things we lack is what I call holy insistence. Holy because it needs to be gracious and godly, but insistence it is. Not that soft kind of, oh, honey, baby, dear, would you go pick that up, sweetie? And they don't pick it up, so you walk over and pick it up because you don't want to have a conflict. Instead of saying, I told you to pick that up. And if you don't pick it up right now, you're going to get a spanking, and then you're going to pick it up. And if you don't pick it up then, right, Rachel? This is one of my Rachel stories. How old were you? Do you remember? You don't remember? She was, she, this, this is a story I, I heard, I've heard told a thousand times, but it's, uh, she was probably, what, Mary, Three? So she was plenty old enough. I was home for lunch, and we were homeschooling. Erin and Kristen were in the other room, and she, she had a bunch of toys out on the floor, and I told her to pick them up. And she just looked at me. I said, "Pick that up." And she knew she picked up toys plenty of times. And we were about to have a the old-fashioned Mexican standoff, and uh, the showdown. And so she was not picking it up. She just stood there. And literally one block that she needed to pick up and put in a basket it was right there. And she came by this honest. She got this from me. Her mother's not like this at all. Well, Rachel, uh, Kristen, and Aaron were in the other room, and Kristen needed to go from that room to the back of the little house we lived in to get something out of her bedroom, which meant she had to walk right past us where we were having the showdown. I'd gotten the wooden spoon out at this point, And Rachel had received several whacks on the leg, and she was crying, but she still wasn't picking up the block. And so Kristen very quickly goes by, goes to the room, and on the way back, she's coming back by pretty quickly, and she stops, and she turns around and she said, Rachel, daddy always wins. And she scurried off, and Rachel leaned down and picked up the block. (laughs) So, but always winning is important. So don't promise things you don't want to deliver on, okay? And that's why you need to have a plan ahead of time about what you're disciplining and what the discipline is because sometimes you say, you know, you you end up maybe threatening more than you really want to carry out on. And so if you have a clear plan uh, and you stick with it, but you always win because if you don't, you'll lose later when it is far more important than picking up a block. And by the way, I don't think I ever had another showdown with Rachel like that. Uh, we had other kinds, but um, we all do with all our kids. I'm sure y'all never did anything like that, right? Um, anyway. All right, let's, uh, let's stop. We're out of time. Thanks for coming. We'll come back next week and uh, do a few more big-picture things, and then we'll start focusing in on the details. Thanks.